Welcome back to the Rad Lab podcast presented by Tennessee Tech's chemistry department. Lastly, we spoke about um, the Curies, and we're going to continue that conversation. Um, what were the What did we talk about last time, Dale? We talked mainly about a little bit about their lives, and then talking about being brought together and meeting and basically finding like-minded dedication to science and how this was a, a very unexpected but uh, very nice account. Uh, we talked about how Marie, who initially didn't know how to boil uh, soup, uh, became a, a homemaker because of her intensity to make their life with Pierre something that was um, very nice. I think today we'll begin sort of with the, uh, the birth of Irene, their first child, was in 1897. And this initially caused some stress on the household because there was only Pierre who did not really have much interest in taking care of Irene. Uh, and so Marie had all of the responsibilities and still wanted to work in the lab. Caused, that caused quite a bit of stress until uh, Pierre's father moved in with them and they were able to go to a little bit larger house and he took care of Irene then. And they weren't making a lot of money, right? Because he was like a entry, like lab tech kind of position at uh, the university. Exactly. He was at what they called an industrial university. It was for physics and chemistry. And he was what we would probably call a laboratory supervisor and oversaw uh, putting together the labs and what labs the students had to accomplish. Yeah, and uh, Marie was a grad student, so she wasn't making... Well, she actually had a small grant to study the uh, metallic properties of various metals uh, that the... I think this was um, the Academy of science required to have a sort of a, a catalog of the uh, properties and it, but it was a very small amount yes they they were they were very um, stressed financially so at uh, at the point uh, when Pierre's father moved in with them then things smoothed out and so Marie and Pierre began to talk about what they could what she could do towards getting her PhD and at that point in time the big thing was of course the x-rays and working with x-rays and and the discoveries that um, based on Rankin but um, Pierre suggested that she might want to look into Becquerel rays or uranic rays, whichever name you wanted to use, because there was so little interest in them, it looked like this might be an area where we won't have to compete with others. 
Yeah, low-hanging fruit, possibly. Possibly, <laughs> right. Now, what's interesting is Pierre knew this because Becquerel had tried to use one of Pierre's instruments to measure the radioactivity. However, he was unsuccessful and kind of pushed it aside like everybody else. And so there's very little interest in the uranic rays at this time. Now, Marie was a very pragmatic scientist. In other words, she wanted to do things in a very structured manner. As a result, she began to study the minerals and look at for radioactivity of the minerals. But she was not satisfied with simply using photographic plates because that only gave her information about the intensity, but not really a way of comparing one mineral to another. So Pierre then used his ideas and developed an instrument that allowed her to measure the intensity of the radiation, which combined his piezoelectric effect and electrometer as well as an area, a place where the radioactivity, the radioactive material was placed in what we would call a ion chamber, positive and a negative plates, and a small voltage would be generated. And this small voltage could only be measured by one of Pierre's very sensitive electrometers and required you to look at the mirror of the electrometer and then to balance out the, the charge on the electrometer by adding or subtracting small weights from a piezoelectric crystal. And all this had to be done while you're looking through a microscope at the mirror to see where the line was to come to a zero point. And Marie was one of the very few people that could do that. Yeah, to be that dexterous and... <laughs> especially at that time, to be so delicate. Because how much weight are we talking about moving on and off? Oh, um, less than, we're probably looking at milligrams. Milligram quantities, yeah. So yeah. Super, like, really small yeah, amounts. Very and, small. Yeah, and it's still hard to weigh out a milligram even today with the balances we have yeah. and things like that. And the other aspect there is she had to be looking at it for a long period of time. So she would spend hours looking through the microscope window. Now, what, one of the things that came out of this is that she, Marie was the first one to have a quantitative way of measuring radioactivity. They also coined the term radioactivity, and they used metallic uranium as their standard and then compared other materials to that. One of the things they found, Marie found first off, was that thorium was radioactive. And then she began to study all sorts of other minerals and found some minerals. Uh, one particularly uh, was pitchblende, which is a 
ore that contains uranium. And they found that the pitch blend had a much higher intensity than the percent of uranium in the system. And they also found this with a calcolite mineral, which is copper, uranium, phosphate, and Marie knew the composition of calcolite. And so she made it, and interestingly enough, when she made the synthetic calcolite, it had a radioactivity corresponding to simply the amount of uranium in the crystal, whereas non-synthetic calcolite had almost twice the amount of activity than the amount of uranium. And so this suggested that these minerals, pitchblende, calcolite, and others, contain, may have contained an element, they thought, more active than uranium itself. And this was one of the first papers that uh, Marie and Pierre uh, produced. Wow. So that's an extremely systematic way of trying to figure that out. Um, so she was, that was just her personality, right? Yes. Now, w- what they did find, and this basically is chemistry, is they took pitch blend, because that was the one that had the, the highest uh, activity, and began to treat it as what we would call a qual scheme, where we use precipitation of different, un, different elements under different conditions. Um, and so she found that in the uh, sulfur precipitates, they could isolate a compound in the bismuth stream so it had the, this activity, which they didn't know what it was, but they could isolate it away from uranium, away from most other known elements, except for bismuth. And it had an activity about 400 times that of uranium. But as, as they went through, they considered it to be a new element but they couldn't prove it because at that point in time to prove a new element, you had to have a spectral line that did not correspond to any other elements. And since they couldn't separate it from bismuth, they couldn't get that purified. And they couldn't find any, any new line would have been hidden by the bismuth. In fact, uh, they finally realized later on that for X, uh, it was a tenth of a milligram per ton of pitch blend. So they had process one ton, metric to, ton, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, metric, one, metric ton, 1,000 kilograms yeah. uh, for a tenth of a milligram of material. Of this unknown element Yeah, that's trapped with this bismuth. Now what Marie did is she felt so confident that it was a new mineral, that she went ahead and proposed that it be named polonium for the country Poland, 
which was very political at that time because Poland didn't exist. It had been um, divided up between Austria, Hungary, Russia, and Germany. Uh, and so Poland didn't exist, but she wanted the name to be Polonium. An ode to Poland, as mm -hmm. it may. And that kind of just stretches so into just how political naming has really become, um, even like recently with a lot of other things and how yeah. um, the thoughts, the thought process that has to go through yeah. for a lot of naming, th naming schemes and things like that. But so when they were breaking down this one ton of pitch blend, what was the what was the what was the the physical cost of that? Um, how did how was that process done? Because um, at the time they didn't really have a, a a lab, or they had a really small lab. Well, what they had been given originally, uh, because the uh, head of um, the school took basically took pity on them, uh, he gave them a glass shed which at one time had been used for cadavers in medical school and where they did dissections. And it was glass because that allowed a lot of light in. And, um, but it had become so, I don't know exactly what the term was, but uh, several of the well-known, for example, uh, uh, Rutherford, when he, you know, this would have been four or five years after they actually used it. When he saw it, he didn't think it was it was good enough for even pigs. Wow. To operate in. So that rundown. Yeah, it it was pretty. And so, the processing of all the uh, pitch plan was done in large metal kettles over an open fire if they needed to heat it, stirring with. Uh, long metal rods and we're talking about tons and tons of material eventually were processed that way yeah and so how how long would it take from like from start to finish would it take days um well i I'm trying to remember exactly the relationship and but we're talking about a process where once you isolated, and if we talk about radium, for example, because that was the, the one that actually they really focused on because she realized that it, there was a better chance of separating it than the bismuth from the X, polonium. Uh, the radium came down in the barium fraction and in con in conjunction with a chemist Gustav Biomont uh, he suggested they could use fractional precipitation as a way of concentrating the new material in fractional precipitation you you make a saturated uh, solution and then you allow it to cool slowly, and at different temperatures, the the fractionation occurs. And so you you take the fraction that has the most activity, 
and take it and do it again. Do it again. Yeah. And do it again. And so we're talking about probably tens of thousands of of redissolved and and fractional yeah. crystallization. Yeah. It, tremendous amount of work. Yeah, a lot of backbreaking work for sure. Right. Now, early on in the process, Pierre had been put up for a professorship at the Soborn University. Pierre was not one to promote himself. And as a result, and because he never graduated from a known university, he he was self-taught and by tutors and by his father. And so even though he was known to be probably the expert in crystallography and that area, um, a lesser person got the professorship. And at that point is when Pierre said, well, heck with this, I'll help Marie. And so then his handwriting begins to show up in her notebook. Hmm. And they pretty much separated the work. Pierre would be working on the physics side. Uh, Marie was working on the chemistry. So he gave up everything after that point. You know, I guess he was fed up with all the bureaucracy and the politics of, every, of mm-hmm. all the professorships and things like that. And I can understand that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, he was, they, it's, it's obvious that they and Becquerel did not get along. Even though Becquerel gave the the last two papers that are part of Marie's um, dissertation, um, uh, Pierre did not trust him, and in fact, he was Pierre was nominated for the French Academy of Science. Uh, Becquerel, prom, you know, was, was supposedly nominating him. And in the end, he again did not get um, elected. A lesser, older uh, person got elected, and after that, Pierre just said, "I'm I'm done. I'm done with all this yeah, uh, with horse and pony show." Yeah. <laughs> but. And um, you know, and he then did things like um, work to. Uh, obtain all the pitch blend that Marie needed for her work, and one of the one of the comments that was made it, it was probably good that they were in a basically a courtyard area because a laboratory wouldn't have been able to handle the tons of pitch blend that they had to go through in order to get uh, the radium. Now. Time-wise, Marie's, from the beginning to the announcement of radium, was about a year. So she began work in in, in, um, 1898, and through that year, I think it was in January of 99 that they announced radium. Again, the paper would have been given by Becquerel. And Becquerel actually 
obtained uh, several grants for Marie, but he would not tell her directly. He would tell Pierre, oh, you can tell your wife that she got this degree. Becquerel seems like a very, very interesting character mm -hmm. because on one hand, he's helping them, but on the other right. hand, yeah. it's like, what is his, what are his motives? Do you think yeah. he was maybe jealous that they were able to do what he couldn't? I, you know, that, that certainly, you know, seems, yeah. I mean, even the, the entire population, uh, the comments are that her papers, her announcements were not met with, uh, oh, wow, this is great. It was met with, well, who is this? And she's a woman. And well, wasn't she a governess? And how can someone from Poland, you know, be? And she's married to an industrial laboratory teacher. You know, yes. all those things. So a lot of things they had to kind of fight against to get yeah. their name out there. Yeah. And but two of the most significant aspects of her work initially was that um, they could use the radioactivity to indicate that there were new elements present and that this was an atomic property as opposed to a physical property because uh, she was able to show that whether it was a liquid or a solid, the characteristic radioactivity didn't change. So, but interestingly enough, the idea of the source of, of this radioactivity and, and, and the mechanism, Becquerel was still pushing the uh, phosphorescent type activity, that it came from some out, outside source that came and, and then caused this activity. Uh, Marie actually uh, began to think that it was from the atom itself and that we may be looking at the destruction of the atom. But even Pierre said, oh, that's ridiculous because so many people were into the idea at that point in time, uh, remember you had Dalton's Law, which said an atom was the smallest indivisible, you know, uh, portion of an element mm -hmm. and so you couldn't couldn't think of it becoming being, any smaller yeah yeah and, or flying apart mm -hmm. so what was their understanding of the atom at that time like what was their model they were they were going with at that time it was the thompson model of the what they call it a raisin pudding you know type model because mm -hmm. uh we don't have the Rutherford's uh, gold foil experiment yet. Yeah. But Marie became very driven because after her announcement, she found out, oh, I lost thorium because a German had announced it about three weeks earlier. And, of course, she wouldn't have known that because of uh, the... It took a while for the things to get... To travel. <laughs> yeah. Now, what is really interesting is there are three notebooks that still exist 
of Marie's work, Marie and Pierre's work, that led up to the Nobel Prize. Uh, one also has to note that those are were when pulled out about 20 years ago, still very radioactive. <laughs> Radiation safety wasn't born yet. Yeah, uh, no, it wasn't. Um, and as Marie began to get things more and more concentrated, she uh, was able to concentrate the polonium to about 400 times the radioactivity of um, uranium metal. But with radium, she was able to get it to 10 times 10 to the sixth more intense than, ura than uranium metal. And so she was able to finally isolate a tenth of a gram of radium chloride and determine its molecular weight and also got a spectrum. So this was the end of about a three-year process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, and so then in 1903, Becquerel, Pierre, Marie Curie won the Nobel Prize in Physics for the discovery of radioactivity. Now, at that point, uh, Marie and Pierre were unable to travel to Sweden to give the address, and so Becquerel was able to give the address. During the address, no mention of Marie was made. Wow. Really? Best I can tell. Man, it... He, he, he talked some about Pierre, but he was not very... Um, Keen on talking about Marie. No, he talked about himself. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah, what a... He seems like a... Very opportunistic. Yeah. Well. Good thing our episode on him was so short, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't until 1905 that Pierre gave the his portion of the Nobel lecture in which he almost totally put everything to Marie. Yeah. So um, one can say that that was a good thing. Now, a couple of other comments that are quite interesting. Um, somebody came to Pierre and said, oh, the, um, uh, the French government wants, wants to give you an award. I forget exactly what it was, but it was some high honor. And Pierre just said, I'd rather have a new lab. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I bet. Don't, I don't want an you know, I don't want that. I'd rather have a lab. Um, both of them were at this point in time, um, Marie was having a very difficult pregnancy with her second Eve, and uh, Pierre was uh, suffering from uh, arthritis, uh, his hands especially seem to uh, get this. Now, there are many stories of Pierre keeping a vial of radium in his watch pocket 
And in fact, there's a note in in one of the notebooks where he mentioned the fact that he had a rash right where his watch pocket was. Um, then in the spring of 1906 is when tragedy struck. Um, Pierre was on his way to a publisher to get a book, uh, look at preprints for a book. Uh, it was raining, slippery. He fell in a crowded street and was run over by a uh, wagon. And the wagon wheel went, um, evidently went right over his head. And um, Man. that was... That was... That was it. it. That was it. Just a few years after yeah. winning the Nobel. Yeah. And that, that caused Marie to go into severe depression. And... Um, that was uh, took a number of years for her to recover from that. Mm-hmm. Did was she? Did she still work while she was? Did she pour herself into her work after that point? For a year or so, she was no, she did not work. But she was then appointed to the professorship that had been given to Pierre after they won the Nobel Prize at the Sorbonne. And she began to then start work again. But um, after his death, there was a period of uh, severe depression, as you might expect. Yeah. And um, she did not do very much. Yeah. That's, that's, so, that's so sad. Now, uh, we're... But the one thing that they did is they refused to patent the process for extracting uranium, um, radium from uranium ores. Uh, they said that should be something that the world owns. Uh, they also would take small amounts of their very uh, expensive concentrates and freely send it to other scientists Wow. Who asked? So they were, yeah, they, they didn't care. They wanted to share it. Well, they wanted to share it, but, you know, they, they were very into getting their, their uh, Marie was very into getting awarded what was theirs. Yeah. But they were also very willing to share with others. Um, now, the, story, the last story I, I think is appropriate here is with polonium. There was a a German who actually finally isolated enough of it to get it, uh, to get a spectrum. So to get the spectral line, which was sort of the, that's what you needed. The standard. And so uh, he technically was the discoverer. However, he went ahead and allowed the element to be named polonium. So he allowed Marie to have that. The naming of it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Great guy. That's a good guy. Like, especially thinking about, you know, have we heard about Becquerel and some of these other characters? Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it was, a lo- it's kind of nice to hear that there were still some nice people within the field. Yes. Well, there were, and Marie went on to have a 
somewhat productive life, but um, it was filled with uh, their, she was nominated for uh, the French Academy, but was turned down, and so she basically said, I don't want to even bother with them anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, she went through periods of very uh, financial distress, and of course, at that point, she won the second Nobel Prize in chemistry for the determination of atomic weight of radium. And her atomic weight was almost spot on to what it is today, yeah. which is amazing. Mm -hmm. So what we probably need to talk about as we talk about things is the next character that I've been reading about and I really like is Rutherford. Mm -hmm. uh, was a New Zealander. He was a Kiwi uh, who showed up uh, got a scholarship to England, uh, and when he got the letter, he was standing on the the farm, uh, the front porch of the farm, and he's, he uh, got the letter and told his dad that he'd no longer be picking up potatoes out of the field. <laughs> and moved to England. And he bought passage to England and showed up at... Um, Cambridge. Wow. So yeah. we'll, we'll talk about uh, his contributions to this area. Absolutely. One last thing, though. Um, so this was really the birth of what we consider radiochemistry, the quantification of right. radioactivity, and this mm -hmm. is where it all started. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I just wanted to make that point, I guess. But yeah, so yeah. That, that's kind of, it's really cool to see like the where, you know, this form of chemistry that we've both dedicated our lives to um, really started out from and the humble beginnings of it and the work that they really had to go through and the hardships. Well, and, and the time frame here is we've, we're, we started in 1897 mm -hmm. and, you know, up to uh, Marie and Pierre and Becquerel getting Nobel Prize in uh, 03 O2 was Rentkin's Nobel Prize. Um, and, you know, just a short period of time that things have happened. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll see how quickly things, even now, I mean, take so long. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and also the other aspect that I think we'll see is that science moves from individual workers to collaboration mm -hmm. in larger groups yeah. as you go through the years. Yeah. And so the discovery of radium and this Nobel Prize, they won the Nobel Prize for radium. I guess we're kind of seeing it now with AI and things like that, where we're kind of making these discoveries, but we're not really looking into the future of what kind of harm or what what are the after effects of, the, of certain mm -hmm. discoveries, right? Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Well, with radium, they began to see that it was a way to treat cancers. But then they also, you also have um, putting of, for example, there was a toothpaste that had thorium in it because it was going to whiten your teeth. And 
you had reinvigorators. These were crocs that had, some had radium in them, most had just uranium mineral in a, a stone in the bottom, and you put water in it, and it sort of invigorates the water. Um, you know, there are all sorts of aspects that people, and, um, and sadly, because they didn't realize the, the effects, uh, the radium doll painters are a good example uh, where they were using uh, radium to eliminate the, the hands of a clock. And they would point their brush so they could paint the numbers um, on their tongue. And these poor ladies uh, really suffered yeah. as a result. Yeah. Yeah, so, and I think, and that's kind of just kind of what we do as a society with x-rays. We implemented it in a positive way, but we weren't thinking about maybe maybe the possible negatives, and people were getting hurt and things like that. And as with radioactivity, radioactive elements, like you said, they would put it kind of in their water and things like that. There are positives. You could treat cancers with it, but there was also maybe we took it a step too far. Right, and I think that's always something we kind of do with new discoveries. Maybe a little bit safer now, but I think we're kind of getting into a realm. Well, and I'd have to say that uh, radioactivity tends to be the poster child of something like this, but you have to look at DDT. You know, that was going to, you know, that was developed to cure uh, malaria or, or to kill the mosquitoes so that that carry malaria or you know there are other drugs that have come out which one thought were going to be uh, a, a godsend and in turn they had negative results that um, you really wouldn't want yeah yeah and it's sad that radio like Radiation and radioactivity is the poster child for, I guess, you know, taking science a little too far too quickly. But there's, yeah, like you said, so many other examples of supposed to be these godsends, these wonder drugs, things like that, which really um, turn out to be, you know, more negative than positive. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure we'll get into, you know, um, I guess the, the current mindset of what radioactivity mm-hmm. is in the world and maybe how we can... Uh, move that forward, possibly. Well, yeah, uh, there, there are some positive aspects coming out. Yeah, it's, yeah, especially now, and we'll mm-hmm. definitely. Um, Certainly, it is a way of uh, being carbon neutral mm-hmm. uh, eventually. Yeah, uh, and uh, my aspect is, I know we're everybody's getting excited about electric cars. Um, but we have to have the electricity, and whether it's produced by um, gas or oil or coal, coal. solar, wind—you yeah. know, you know what's really what's really feasible feasible right. at this moment, and you know, yeah. And we'll 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 get into that. <laughs> but all right, well, thank you for listening, and next time we'll talk about Rutherford and his contributions. Yes.